This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. A new group has joined the outcry against the Trump policy of separating families at the U.S. border. It's a bipartisan coalition of about 80 former U.S. attorneys, including one from Colorado. This week, the group released a letter to Attorney General Jeff Sessions. It says the family separations have led to unnecessary trauma for the children and a burden on the justice system. Many of the families are seeking asylum and say they face danger in their home countries. Joining us is John Walsh, former U.S. attorney for the District of Colorado, who signed the letter. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Congress and the White House have been going back and forth on whether the policy continues. So this is a developing story. The AP is reporting that the head of Homeland Security has drafted a memo to end family separations. On Tuesday, the president said he had little choice but to prosecute adults coming over the border, which means he also has little choice, he says, but to take children from their parents. What's your take on all this? Well, first of all, I I would want to emphasize that the law does not require the systematic separation of families at the border. That's simply not something that has to be done. This is a policy that was announced by Attorney General Sessions in April, uh, and it could be reversed by Attorney General Sessions or apparently Secretary Nielsen today in the next 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, as a practical matter, there is nothing about that th- this that requires congressional action to fix. And even if the president does reverse this policy, there are still children across the country who have already been separated from their parents, which presumably means those cases are currently in the justice system. They're being worked out right now. Your letter says the administration's policy is, quote, dangerous, expensive and inconsistent with the values of the institution in which we served. Why is this policy dangerous? Well, look, anyone who has small children uh, in their home, parents, uh, whether they have children who are young or even teenagers, realizes that if they're taken away from their parents by a law enforcement agency, especially if we're talking toddlers, which apparently is happening, it, it creates a very scary situation. And even with the best of intentions, the people who are holding those kids in what amount to detention facilities, there's a risk. There's a substantial risk there. We don't know what the needs of those kids are and our ability as a country to take adequate care of them over time when we're talking apparently thousands of families separated just in the last six weeks. That's a huge risk. It's not something that we should be doing. And it's really contrary to the values of the Department of Justice, which has as its mission justice, uh, and the values of the United States. You are former U.S. attorney for the District of Colorado. You've been working on this for months now. Um, How quickly did this evolve for you? Uh, Is this something you've been seeing for a while? It seems for, for many Americans this happened all of a sudden. Well, there had been reports dating back over a year that the uh, administration was considering a systematic policy of family separation at the border. In fact, while uh, current uh, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly was secretary of DHS, he talked about that possibility. Uh, It started to come to a head in December and January uh, just a few months ago, and many of us, seeing that this was even being considered as a possibility, were alarmed by it because the law doesn't require it. And the possibility of really terrible consequences to innocent young children was, was obvious. So we started working on it as a result of that. Now, the Trump administration says its policy is more humane than previous administrations. It contends that previous policies, in effect, encouraged families to cross the border, and that meant that children faced serious risk because they were traveling thousands of miles to get to the U.S. How do you assess that danger? 
Well, look, it. I, I, I would want to emphasize that during the six years that I was U.S. attorney here in Colorado, I and our office was aggressive about prosecuting immigration violations. It was the single largest category of cases that we brought. But we focused on cases that involved actual public safety concerns. We focused on people who had prior convictions, people who had been deported repeatedly, people who had ties to gangs, people who had multiple DUIs and could pose a danger on the streets and the highways of Colorado. That's a focused, smart policy. Now, did we get everything right? Absolutely not. There's much more that could be done. But the 75 or 80 of us who signed that letter, U.S. former U.S. attorneys asking and demanding that this family separation policy be ended, all of us understand the need for aggressive protection of our border. That's not what this is about. This is about protecting children. It's about making sure that we're enforcing the law in a sustainable, just, and appropriate way. Many families who are crossing the border want asylum uh, because of violence in their own countries. They say they will be in danger if they return. But U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions says previous policies made it too easy to claim asylum. Saying a few simple words, claiming a fear of return is now transforming a straightforward arrest for illegal entry and immediate return into a prolonged legal process. Now, are you saying that people are not using the asylum process as an excuse to come to this country? Look, are there cases where there's abuse? Of course there are cases like that, but they're the exception. The asylum process is an arduous process. Many of the people asking for asylum are held in detention for years before their cases are fully adjudicated. There's a, it's not something that someone would undertake lightly. It's a, uh, the sort of thing that one does almost always because you have a legitimate fear about returning to your home country. Part of the reason we're seeing a lot of families or have over the last few years a lot of families coming to the U.S. from Central America is because there's been a wave of actual gang violence there. In countries like Honduras and El Salvador, people are genuinely concerned. And the stories coming out of those countries are real. Now, having said that, it's hard to get asylum in the United States. If someone comes and makes a generalized claim of fear, that's not enough. They have to prove it. And so to suggest that there is a wave of people who are coming here for the purpose of getting uh, a long stay in the United States until their asylum claim is denied, I just don't think is reality. The letter from you and other U.S. attorneys also say the policy is expensive. Uh, Where does that come in? One thing to keep in mind is that we already prosecute an enormous number, really tens of thousands of immigration violation cases along the southwest border of the United States. That's expensive enough. If we really went to a zero tolerance uh, approach, we would be prosecuting something like 300,000 misdemeanor cases a year as opposed to about a tenth of that now. I mean, are there enough courtrooms for that and there judges are for that? Not, there are not enough courtrooms. There aren't enough assistant U.S. attorneys. There aren't enough federal public defenders to do that. There aren't enough holding facilities to do that. In fact, the reality of this, and I know this is going on as we speak, is that courts along the southwest border are struggling and meeting and trying to figure out how they can possibly handle a policy like this if it's actually implemented. Um, It's a huge problem, and it would require tens of millions of dollars to implement. 
What about the argument that the job of the Justice Department is to uphold the laws and protect U.S. citizens, which is what the Trump administration says is happening? Well, of course, that's the, the role of the Department of Justice. We have always had that first and foremost in mind. The question is, how do you do that with the limited resources that you've got? We don't have an infinite number of federal agents. We don't have an infinite number of assistant U.S. attorneys or federal courts. We never will. The question is, how do you take the resources you have and focus on the real public safety risk? Now, you know, the notion that a misdemeanor prosecution at the border is going to deter an MS-13 gang member from coming across the border is ridiculous. It's not an effective way to fight actual violent people coming across the border. Those guys could do a misdemeanor conviction when they get up in the morning before they have their first cup of coffee. The Trump administration says the solution is for Congress to close immigration loopholes instead of asking the administration to ignore immigration laws. So far, Congress hasn't been able to agree on that approach. There are bills being floated around Congress. Is there a solution there? Uh, it has this kind of you know, forced the hand of Congress to pass uh, comprehensive immigration reform? You know, Congress has been trying to pass comprehensive immigration reform for, for years and years and years under democratically controlled Congresses, under republicly, Republican controlled Congresses. The notion that using kids as hostages to force Congress to pull together and pass a, comprehend, a comprehensive immigration reform, frankly, is appalling. Do you think, though, that this controversy might actually break the gridlock in Congress and lead to change? The reports I've been seeing over the last 24 hours suggest that while there's a lot of effort to try to uh, get out uh, from the the very bad publicity that's coming out of this, as it should be coming out of this policy, um, that there's no consensus on how to do that. So I'm, you know, if history is any guide, the likelihood of comprehensive immigration reform coming out of this situation is slim to none. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. John Walsh is former U.S. attorney for the District of Colorado. He's now with law firm Wilmer Hale in its Denver office. We've been talking about a letter from a bipartisan group of about 80 former U.S. attorneys, including Walsh. It condemns the Trump administration's policy of separating families at the border. And this is a developing story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver has decided to crack down on marijuana bus tours. We told you about one of those tours just last week. First, the tour guides introduce themselves, and they are Gage Dunn and Elise Morgan. Welcome to the party bus. If you couldn't tell, uh, you guys can smoke on here. Yeah, so riders were free to consume cannabis in any form they chose. That's a reporter, Alexander McMahon. I'd say the bus ride itself is one of the main events of this tour because it's one of the few sanctioned places where you can openly use marijuana. At least that's what it seemed like last week. My 420 Tours has been shuttling tourists to pot shops and giving them a place to smoke for about five years. And they are hardly the only marijuana bus tour in Colorado. They've appeared in travel magazines and on national TV. But on Friday, Denver police busted two companies' buses, citing 31 employees and tourists for public consumption. Xander is here again with an update on this story, along with CPR reporter Nathaniel Miner. Hello. Hi. Hey. 
Alexandra, when you first talked to My420 Tours, what did the company tell you about what's allowed and what's not? Like, where were they drawing the line? They said people had to bring their own marijuana to consume. The company can't sell any on the bus. And they also stressed that all cannabis product must stay on the bus because if they take any off, then they'd be landing in that public consumption hot water. And with that, the company really did believe it was operating within the rules. Is this the first time the city has gone after these bus companies for public consumption, Nate? Uh, According to the city, yes. So what's their reasoning for cracking down right now? They told me they were getting complaints from the public. So I asked for copies of those complaints, and the city denied my request. They said that they need to protect the integrity of the ongoing investigation. But the underlying issue here is about whether these are private uses of marijuana or public uses. So I talked with city spokesman Eric Escudero. It is legal for an individual to privately rent out the bus for, let's say, a bachelor party, and then they could consume the marijuana on the tour bus because it would be private and public would not have access to it. In this instance, it was public access uh, where an undercover police department officer was able to access the vehicle and observe the public uh, use of marijuana. Hmm. So that officer bought tickets to get on the bus, and the city says that means the tours are public. Does the crackdown contradict anything the city said since recreational legalization about whether these tours are legal? Kind of, yeah. The city's own website says consuming marijuana in the back of a limousine is legal. Mm -hmm. And that's the legal basis these companies have built their whole business on. Uh, They've been operating this way back since 2014. Attorneys say a lot, though, is left open to interpretation. There isn't a lot of case law out there to guide law enforcement and city attorneys. It's the Wild West. People are having a hard time staying legal, even though they're doing their best to, to try to maintain using marijuana within the law. That's Darren Magnell, uh, who specializes in marijuana law. Nate, is the city going to keep up the arrest? Because the tours are public, so law enforcement can just find out where they are and go in, right? Well, we don't really know. Um, I asked them, and they kind of played it close to the vest. Uh, City spokesman Escudero would only say they'll continue to enforce all laws. All right. So the tour companies obviously disagree about whether they operate legally. Right. They were really taken aback by what happened last Friday. Here's Michael Imar, CEO and founder of Colorado Cannabis Tours, the other company that was busted last week. It's been complete smooth sailing. I've done hundreds of media appearances. We've had the consumption on these buses filmed by CNN and and broadcast to 5 million people. So what's their reasoning in terms of the public-private legal issue? Basically, they lean on that limousine law. They say they're open, operating privately behind a closed door. So things like you can't smoke when the bus doors are open, blinds are pulled down, they put up a divider, a physical barrier between passengers and the driver. So they try to really make it a private experience, at least on Colorado cannabis tours. You can't just show up day of and get on the bus. You actually have to buy a ticket in advance. In hindsight, though, it seems like the tour companies back in March and April got a whiff of what was going to come. The city sent them letters specifically saying that public consumption on buses was illegal in most circumstances and telling them they needed special licenses to hold 420 events. The city was trying to warn these business owners. We were hoping that they would follow a legal course so enforcement would not be necessary. But Danny Schaefer, the CEO of My420 Tours, says he interpreted it as more informational because the city's letter did not ask us to discontinue operations or anything to that extent. And that is true. It's not really a cease and desist letter, but it seems to me at least that he's trying to, he's really downplaying the severity of the letter. Um, you can go online to our website, cpr.org, and read those letters yourself. 
The companies think this is com- coming down to a licensing conflict. I talked to Schaefer at My420 Tours after the buses were busted, and he said the city wants his business to apply for the new social consumption licenses that Denver voters approved in 2016. The businesses think the city is frustrated that more of them aren't applying, but Schaefer says the process is too complicated. So at this point, instead of diplomacy, they're they're using enforcement and, uh, in my opinion, you know, kind of bullying type tactics to get us to apply for one of these lounge licenses. Schaefer also added that he applied for a task force assembled by the city to reevaluate this program, but they turned him down. What is next for these tour companies? Are they shutting down the buses now? Are they filing suit against the city? So I talked to Imer about this. He's the CEO of Colorado Cannabis Tours, and he wouldn't really tell me much. Um, But he does appear to be uh, leaning toward litigation at this point. And in the meantime, he's making some changes to his tours as well. With the way that they've acted so far, they could crack down again, and I can't risk that. Mm -hmm. So we're making reasonable modifications to the experience. And uh, no shock here, he wouldn't really tell me what those are yet, but so we'll have to kind of stay tuned to see where this goes. And Schaefer from My420 Tours told me he's looking forward to his day in court, so I think they're also planning on fighting this. And he says they plan to continue running their bus tours because if they stopped, then he says it would look like they were admitting to doing something wrong. All right. CPR's Alexander McMahon and Nathaniel Miner. Thanks to you both. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks. What if technology and not a pill is the best solution to mental illness? That question fascinates neuroscientist Kofwi Drasa of Duke University. He says the future of mental health treatment lies in a better understanding of how electricity flows through the brain. CPR's Brad Turner has the story. Hi, Brad. Hi, Nathan. How'd you hear about this work? Well, Drasa talked about this at the Aspen Ideas Festival, where I'm headed next week. I was watching some of the talks from last year and found this one fascinating. So I wanted to share it. It's a great example of the kinds of thinkers who gather in Aspen each year. Kafwi Drasa says the intersection of technology and medicine is a lifelong fascination for him. Hmm. It goes back to a scene from a blockbuster he loved as a child. Here's Kafwi Drasa. So every great science story begins with science fiction. My story was no different. I remember when I was seven... I finally convinced my uh, parents to let me watch Star Wars. And so I got to the second one, uh, Empire Strikes Back, and there's this scene where Luke Skywalker gets into this battle with the guy who ends up being his, his father, Darth Vader, and he cuts off his hand. And, you know, this could be, like, really traumatizing for a little kid. You know, Luke Skywalker's walking around without a hand. But next thing you know, Luke's got a new hand, right? It's this robotic engineered hand that's working. And as he thinks about moving this hand, this hand is working just like his own. And I remember being struck that the picture of of technology augmenting and improving folks who had injuries and improving their function never left me. Fast forward a few years. Drasa went to Duke University for grad school to study neuroscience. He did a mix of research and clinical rotations, which meant he got to see patients up close as they grappled with mental illness. There's one patient that stood out to him, a 19-year-old man named CJ. CJ had been a high school valedictorian and headed to college. As soon as he got to campus, he lost the ability to concentrate. He'd have screaming fits. He attempted suicide twice. He ended up as a patient in the psychiatric unit where Drasa worked. CJ's diagnosis was grim, schizophrenia. Drasa still remembers how painful and how personal it was to break the news to CJ's parents. 
they had a reaction that I'd never quite experienced before. As soon as the words schizophrenia left my mouth, both his parents started trembling. And I thought I needed to explain the disease and the prognosis and the course, and I only got this look of defiance from uh, both of his parents. And so I, I kept going, and finally his dad just stops, and he pauses, and he looks at me, and he says, Dr. Drossa, pick another diagnosis. Pick depression. Pick early onset Alzheimer's. He said, pick anything but that. And finally, CJ's mom looks at me and says, Dr. Jossa, you just don't understand. If you give CJ that diagnosis, you don't understand the stigma that he'll have to face. You don't understand the shame that he'll have to deal with for the rest of his life. But I did. My family has struggled with mental illness for generations. In, in fact, when I was in grad school working on this, uh, all these questions, I had one family member that we had to commit to an inpatient psychiatric unit. It was the first time that my family had ever like, talked about mental illness. I discovered that one of my parents' siblings, out of three out of four of them, carries a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder of, or depression. I remember what it was like for my family to hire a private investigator. Uh, we found one of my family members in the alleyway on another continent hallucinating. So I understand every bit of the stigma and the shame that CJ's parents were dealing with. I, I, I understand the stigma. It's so palpable that every time I go off to give a talk, my family members say, just don't let them figure out who I am. For me, it was this, this dramatic transition that happened in, in grad school that as I was studying these disorders and, and there was this tremendous curiosity, all of a sudden this curiosity became fear as I started learning about psychiatric genetics in my family's history. And it was this, this fear that one day I would wake up hallucinating or, or one day I would be seeing demons. And, and once I, I transitioned into my 30s and passed that critical window, that fear became a fear that one day my, my children or my nieces or my nephews would be diagnosed or, or, or having to deal with one of these illnesses that 20 to 30% of Americans suffer from every year annually. So I started with this dramatic uh, this curiosity about the brain and that curiosity transitioned into fear of, of understanding this organ. And understanding the brain is an incredibly complex challenge. But Drassa says we're getting there, and the progress is happening more quickly. The brain is made up over 200 billion cells, um, and who we are is locked within those cells and their interactions with each other. For centuries, scientists and philosophers have really tried to understand like what this organ is and, 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 and how this organ works. And we've made a lot of progress, so we now understand things like there are differences between your left brain and, and, and movement and, and things like speech and, and things like creativity. But what was remarkable is that as we were making all that progress, it turned out that those early scientists and philosophers didn't appreciate that your brain used a, a, a force uh, that they couldn't see or they couldn't touch. And that force is electricity. And so I'll frame my talk today um, from this perspective, and this is a perspective that we've been wrestling with. What if psychiatric illnesses are actually illnesses of electricity? Does that sound far-fetched? Maybe it shouldn't. Consider this. If you have chest pains and go to the emergency room, doctors will use electricity to check how blood flows through your heart. They might recommend a pacemaker to keep your heartbeat regulated using steady electrical rhythms. 
So if electricity can help with heart problems, Drasa believes it can help with brain problems, and maybe even do more to improve mental health than the drugs doctors have relied on for decades. So it, it turns out if you, you think about an illness like depression, um, what most people don't know is that one of the best treatments for depression is actually putting electricity directly into the brain. And what surprises many people as, as, as I talk about this is that they don't realize that most major medical centers in the country still use this therapy called shock therapy. It's one of the most effective treatments for depression. And so the, the question then is if the holy grail for neuroscientists and what I would frame as the future of psychiatry is understanding electrical pulses and electrical rhythms and electrical information in the brain, then how come we haven't been able to figure out how this works and, and come up with new treatments? As people started to study the brain with the electricity running through it, they noticed some really interesting phenomenon. The first thing that they noticed was that, and this was through putting electrodes, like the heart electrodes, they put them on the head, they noticed these things called brain waves, right? Where you would have electricity in the brain and it would sort of go up and down like waves over time. And, and as they studied these waves, people started having a change in their conceptual framework. And the conceptual framework said, well, what if these waves are almost like little conductors? Little conductors in an orchestra, and they allow brain cells to keep their tempo, such that brain cells can work together to produce music in the same way that all of the musicians in a symphony can produce music together by being coordinated by the conductor. This gets to the core of Dross's hopes for the future of psychiatry. If there's this system of brain waves and little conductors that makes your brain work correctly, then maybe disruptions to that system cause a lot of mental illness. So using an electrical charge in just the right way might just get the brain working in harmony again. This is still a new idea, but the waves and conductors in a human brain also exist in animal brains, including mice. So Drasa works with mice in his laboratory. He calls them animal models. We take animal models and then we expose them to things that give rise to mental illness in humans. And so some of those manipulations might be genes, or we can expose them to a lot of stress. This stress can be uh, things like separating them from their moms when they're young as a model of childhood trauma. We can expose them to things like bullying and adolescence. Um, or we can expose them to drugs of abuse, whether it is things like opiates or cocaine or alcohol. And we can see how that changes their brain metronomic systems. The tools that Drasa uses for his research are as tiny as they are complex. Scientists implant tiny wires, smaller than a hair, into the brains of mice. It gives them data about brain pulses and cells. The mice wake up from surgery, recover for a few days, and then they start to explore their world and feed massive amounts of data to Drasa and his team. Once Drasa has that data coming from the brains of his mice, he can sift through all that data and find certain patterns in the brains of healthy mice and other patterns in the brains of mice that are simulating mental illness. Then we can figure out where the metronomes are basically dysfunctional in the animal's head. Then we apply stimulation tools to fix that. And so the stimulation tools, we have to have ways of reading information or reading what the metronomes are supposed to be in the animal's head. We have to pull that information out in real time, process what the metronome is supposed to look like, and then send the information back in the animal's head in the right way. And we're able to send that information back in 
um, sending energy back in using either direct electrical stimulation or we're putting light back in. In other words, Drossel wants to create a pacemaker for the brain. This would be a leap forward and a more precise treatment than electroshock therapy, which has been around for decades. And researchers are starting to find success with these experiments. They can use electricity to normalize some of the brain patterns in the mice that are simulating mental illness. Drossa told his audience in Aspen that the progress is exciting, though he's the first to admit there's a long way to go. Okay, so I, I could imagine what everyone is thinking at this point in time. A mouse doesn't hallucinate, and a mouse certainly doesn't get suicidal. A mouse isn't CJ, a mouse isn't my family member, right? And so I think it's important to say that that isn't exactly the reason why we use mice, right? And I think in the same way that you can study a mouse's electrical rhythms in his heart and figure out things that are principles that are conserved across species, it's the same way that we can use these animal models to figure out how um, ultimately to target brain pacemakers in humans. From my perspective, I think the future is bright. I'm hopeful for my family members. I think ultimately the treatments uh, that we're working on will allow people who've been suffering from illness to come out of the shadows, to, to, to play prominent roles in contributing to society and ultimately live their healthiest lives. This new technology that uses electricity to alleviate the symptoms of mental illness is in its infancy. It might seem even less plausible than that artificial hand in Star Wars that captivated Kafui Drasa when he was young. But Drasa says devices to regulate brain activity are on the horizon. The federal government has increased funding for research on the inner workings of the brain. And a couple of years ago, Elon Musk, the entrepreneur behind the Tesla electric car, launched a company to create computer augmented intelligence, an interface between machines and the human brain that's not unlike the connections Drasa uses to change the behavior of mice. That's CPR's Brad Turner. Kofwe Drasa's speech was taken from the 2017 Aspen Ideas Festival, Find a video of his entire talk, more highlights from previous Aspen Ideas festivals, and learn about this year's festival, which starts Thursday at CPR.org. A story about a family heirloom that you don't wear or display on a shelf or keep anywhere near Grandma's fine china. Colorado writer Linda Klein grew up in the mountains west of Denver. She recently spoke at Truth Be Told, a storytelling event in Boulder. Klein described her favorite family heirloom, why it's unique, and why she cherishes it. Here's Linda Klein. So it's big, and it's black, and it's heavy. It's made of metal. It's about three feet in diameter. It's got a four-foot handle. And it is caked with soot. It is so filthy that we have to store it in three layers of trash bag. And it is the most precious object in my family. It's a giant 
oversized cast iron skillet. <laughs> so I, I grew up in Idaho Springs, up in the mountains. Probably a lot of you have been through Idaho Springs very quickly on your way to somewhere else. Um, and I, I grew up in kind of an outdoorsy family in the early 70s in the mountains. But outdoorsy was a little different back then than it is now. Like outdoorsy today, you might think of like some nice gear from REI and, you know, in a Subaru Outback. But outdoorsy, you know, in the early 70s in Colorado was more, you know, Grizzly Adams and Mountain Manny. And it was just a little more grubby. (laughs) Then our favorite thing to do as a family was to go out on a Sunday morning and cook out breakfast with our giant skillet. And it usually went like this. Like, my dad would get up really early on Saturday morning, and he'd say, hey, let's go cook out breakfast. And we'd all be, yes! So my brother, Ken, he would go out to the shed, and he'd get the cook box, which was this really heavy wooden box that my dad had made. It had a sort of a fold-down front on it that made a little cook prep area, and it had all these cubbies in it where my mom could put the food. So she would put like the egg, get the eggs in there and the bacon and the potatoes and the bread. And it had this contact paper from the 70s that was like floured, you know. And it made it so she could wipe it off and keep it clean. And then we'd get that in the car. And my dad would go get the skillet out of the shed, put that in the car. And my brother Ken and I, we'd get in the blazer. And we'd take the four-wheel drive roads up uh, Santa Fe Mountain in Arapahoe National Forest just outside of Idaho Springs. And we had a couple favorite places to go. They were wide open and flat and sunny, which you needed on a Saturday morning in the mountains. And they had big, huge rock fire rings. They were always there, even though it was just in the natural forest. It wasn't necessarily a public area. And the first thing my brother and I were always charged with doing was firewood. And my dad had done a great job of teaching us how to spot the standing dead aspen. And he showed us how simple it was and easy to push over a dead tree. And even as a little kid... You, you, could, you could pull down a tree. You felt so powerful. It was awesome. And we'd drag these big, long, skinny aspen trees back to the site, and my dad would bust them up for firewood. And as soon as the heat was on, the first thing that went in the skillet was the bacon. And it's my mom's recipe. I'll give it to you guys. It's, um, it's one pound of bacon per person. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm serious. And, and, and here's why. Here's why. Is because when you fry bacon in a cast iron skillet that is over an open fire, the bacon fries up into these tiny little brown, curly nuggets of beautiful porkness. <laughs> and and my, my, when it was all done, my mom would have to scoop all the bacon out and put it on some paper towels. And we tried really hard not to eat all the bacon before the breakfast was complete, and sometimes less successful than others. And the next thing that went in were the potatoes into the hot bacon grease. Mom would dump the potatoes, and they're full of moisture and water, so they would hit the grease and just, you know, all of the moisture would fly. You had to kind of stand back. And this is the part of the process where I learned as a kid the word patience because potatoes take a while. And this is also kind of an interesting thing that I noticed growing up with this. And, and, and when I cook outdoors as well, there is some kind of anomaly with gravity, around an outdoor cook site. Because it doesn't matter how much precaution you take or the steps you do to prevent this, somehow the earth rises off the ground and into the skillet (laughs) or perhaps into your coffee. And it gives everything we ate outdoors this grisly Adamsy crunch. 
The last thing my mom would put in the skillet was the eggs. She would dump them in with the potatoes. She'd scramble them right in the pan. And we would stand by with our little aluminum camp plates ready to go because nothing cools off hot food faster than a cold mountain air on a Saturday morning. And we'd as quick as we could. You know, and I, I think about, like, my grandma's fine china is definitely precious to me. And, you know, my, my grandpa's wooden rocking chair that we have at my house, it's something I want to keep. But when I think about that skillet, my heart gets full and my eyes sparkle because that filthy skillet is our one true family heirloom. Thank you. That's writer Linda Klein speaking at the Truth Be Told Story Slam. The next Truth Be Told event is Sunday night at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder. Find details and video of Klein at CPR.org. Up next, we're to hear great classical music this summer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. If you're a classical music fan in Colorado, this is probably the event of the summer. Cellist Yo-Yo Ma's upcoming concert at Red Rocks Amphitheater. A famous musician will play a solo recital performing Johann Sebastian Bach's six cello suites. That's just the tip of the iceberg for classical music lovers. Musicians from around the world come to the Rockies each summer to play and teach at music festivals across the state. Monica Vischer, host and program director at CPR Classical, is here to run down some of the summer's musical highlights. Monica, welcome. Thank you for having me, Nathan. All right, before we get to the festival, let's talk about Yo-Yo Ma at Red Rocks on August 1st. This is a pretty big deal, apparently. How unusual is it to have a classical musician play a solo show at a venue like this? Well, it's always a big deal when Yo-Yo Ma comes to town anyway, but I don't know that Red Rocks has ever put on a sold-out full-length performance featuring one musician with one acoustic string instrument on stage for the entire night, playing one composer, by the way. Huh. I mean, that's never happened. Well, I don't. I was checking in with Red Rocks myself. I yeah. checked their archives. They couldn't come up with somebody. They said, "Well, Ed Sheeran um, did a concert, and he was using loop- looping pedal and different instruments. Oh, yeah, yeah, Does yeah. that count?" <laughs> no, but no, this is really unusual, and this is only happening because uh, Tony Pierce, who does artistic planning for the Colorado Symphony, drove Yo-Yo Ma to Red Rocks. I think it was last year. Yeah. He instantly was smitten. Of course, if you're new to Colorado, you haven't been to Red Rocks, you've got to go. You like, gotta go, yeah. like ditch work today <laughs> and go. One of the most uh, renowned classical musicians today, he has this uncanny way, Nathan, of tapping into 
humanity through music. And this is why that show sold out instantly. Just he's able to share this powerful experience. I want to hear a bit more of what Yo-Yo Ma will be playing at Red Rocks. This is more music from Bach's six solo cello suites. It really is beautiful music. What makes these suites so special for Yo-Yo Ma? Well, ever since Pablo Gasols discovered them over a century ago in a second-hand music shop when they were unknown, basically, other than these boring exercises um, in Barcelona, he discovered um, what really is it going too far to say is a holy scripture of sorts for cellists. Hmm. If you're a serious cellist, you study these works, you know these works, Casal did for decades. Um, and the same is true for Yo-Yo Ma. He comes back to them time and time again. He's recorded them um, a couple of different times. And here he's coming back to them again. He said, these pieces have taught me compassion and objectivity while also showing me the beauty of joy and solace, and he is sharing all six of them in a row in one night, August 1st, Colorado Symphony bringing him. Uh, it's going to be a magical evening. And they're truly mesmerizing pieces. They are. Yeah. You think, how can I sit through six solo cello suites? But please, I, <laughs> you've got you've to try this, a special yo-yo ma. Yeah. Well, let's talk about festivals now. Mm -hmm. The granddaddy of classical festivals in Colorado is the Aspen Music Festival in school. They put on dozens of concerts each summer in the Roaring Fork Valley. Tell us about who's playing those concerts. So these are world-famous classical musicians who come to teach and perform. It's also an opportunity for them to get away. That's why all these classical musicians come here in the summer, right? Get to the mountains. (laughs) A lot of them bring their family. So um, you have, for instance, the Shaham family, uh, Violent Gil Shaham and his sister Orly Shaham, who have long come here. And from one summer to the next, various family members are here. And they bring their kids and they perform. And people come to the beautiful Benedict Music Tent and sit in their shorts and enjoy these concerts. And there are hundreds of students, like 600 students, Nathan. There is no festival, teaching festival like this in the world, wow. where we have 600 students come, a huge... Uh, force of faculty, and they come to study with the pros. David Finkel, cellist, Wuhan pianist, a couple. They lead a chamber music studio up there. And it's mostly college-age students. Uh, two dozen Colorado students will be there this summer. Um, and the orchestra pros play right alongside with the students. It is one of the most... It's a life-changing experience for most of these students who go up. Well, let's hear some music that's on the schedule at Aspen this summer. It's Symphony Fantastique. CPR Classical will actually carry this concert live on August 19th.
I have to remind you that the final concert of the Aspen Music Festival is always huge forces. They cram as many people as they can on stage. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's going to be an incredible And they'll concert. be playing this 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 piece. This Symphony, Symphony Fantastique by Hector Berlioz. Boom, yeah. boom, yep. boom. Yeah. Yes, huge. <laughs> I mean, how uh, unusual is it for a summer festival to have so many students studying like they do in Aspen? Well... Aspen is unique, but we do have lots of festivals with similar models across the state. Uh, The National Repertory Orchestra, for decades in Breckenridge, um, teaching summer after summer future orchestra musicians. Um, Opera Steamboat in Steamboat Springs for aspiring opera singers. Colorado College Summer Music Festival in Colorado Springs, which is wrapping up this Saturday, Mm -hmm. Um, will be broadcast broadcasting that live in conjunction with KCME in Colorado Springs, Rocky Ridge Music Center in Estes Park. So they are out there. There are students coming, flocking to Colorado to study all over our uh, state, in our mountains mostly. Let's talk about a different model of music festival. Bravo Vale brings four well-respected orchestras to the Vale Valley. What's it like to go to one of these concerts? Well, it's incredible to... It's not that far of a drive from Vail, uh, from Denver, that is. Yeah. And uh, to witness um, the beautiful surroundings along the Gore Creek and you to take in the fact that you are witnessing one of the nation's top orchestras here in Colorado, and they all come here, the Dallas Symphony, Philadelphia Orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, kicking off uh, tomorrow night with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields from across the pond with violinist music director Joshua Bell. Uh, an incredible summer that Bravo Vale has put together. And, and violinist Joshua Bell here uh, will play Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber, of course, like you said, on June 24th. think of Platoon when I hear I know, this. I know. It's oh. like, name the movie you think of, right? <laughs> right? Name the moment. It has become the nation's song of mourning. Um, yeah, so that's just a piece of music. There's an incredible all-Rachmaninoff concert happening next Wednesday night up at Bravo Vale. Um, Anne-Marie McDermott, the artistic director and pianist, she's incredible. Um, she will be performing as well and what I love is where she shines the classically uncorked series uh, chamber music. Now Central City Opera returns this summer and the schedule includes opera War Horses by Mozart and Verdi. Monica what's your favorite thing about this festival? Probably just being there and the historic buildings, which, of course, the singers get to stay in uh, houses across the street and just yeah. up the hill in the summer. Houses, yeah. Yes, of course, it's a pain in the rear for uh, for them to, for Pat Pierce to have to keep up on the plumbing and all of that kind of thing year by year. But it is an incredible historic opera house, which uh, is another must see. And it is some of it is some of the best opera talent uh, and performance that you're going to hear in the state. Well, here's a highlight from the opera that will open the 2018 season, music from Mozart's The Magic Flute.
Now, all of the festivals we discussed have been around for decades. There's a relatively new one in Boulder, though, that returns for its second season this year. Tell us about that one. Yeah, this was kind of a fun surprise a couple years ago. The Flatirons Chamber Music Festival. Uh, This one... um uh, is in Boulder, debuted last year, returns this year. It is short, handful of concerts that uh, are presented over a week. And it really is another group of musicians that we've kind of imported uh, from uh, across the country. They're from These are musicians from New England in their 20s. And uh, they just love the intimate setting. Uh, one of the concerts is in a barn. So that's the Flatirons Chamber Music Festival. Let's hear a little music from the composer in residence at Flatirons Chamber Music Festival. This is called For Purple Mountains, and composer Benjamin Park says it's inspired by the Rocky Mountains. Monica, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. You can find the full guide to classical festivals around the states and see which concerts will air on CPR Classical at CPR.org. And that's our show. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.